Hi, welcome to the 32nd episode of In The Between. My name is Danny. And I'm Nadia. And today we're going to talk about uh, a couple of books that we've been reading and our thoughts about them. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start with a book called Contemporary Indonesian Fashion, Through the Looking Glass. It's by Alessandra Lopez Iroyo. And I was really excited about this book, um, you know, when I, I heard it was going to come out. And it's published by Bloomsbury. And the cover is of this Indonesian fashion designer called um, August uh, Sustastro. And, well, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it, really, the book. So when I started reading, I was really, really pumped. Like, I, I got it ordered um, at the LaSalle Library, and then I went to pick it up. And I was like, yes, let's dive into it. Um, and there are definitely some really great information in the book. Mm-hmm. So the entry point is, you know, Alessandra is both an academic as well as a model. So she prides herself on being um, part of this modeling agency called Grey Models, I believe. Where Oh, um, I've heard of them. Yeah, you know, so she's uh, she's an older model and, you know, she has some work as well in Indonesia. And I think that's the entry point. So she became interested um, in Indonesia um, before that, I think through dance as well. She's written about dance too. <laughs> so um, I'll just read you a bit of the blurb to get you the context of what it is about. So Indonesian fashion has undergone a period of rapid growth over the last three decades. So she talks about, you know, how um, the book questions concepts of tradition and modernity in the developing world. And she talks about um, elite consumption of luxury brands as well as large-scale manufacturing of fast fashion. And of course, um, not to forget uh, Busana Muslim or Modest Wear, which is, of course, a really vibrant and growing industry um, in the past decade or so. And I find this really interesting at the back of the book. It says it ultimately questions the deeply entrenched Eurocentrism of global fashion. So mm-hmm. what really struck me about this book was like, okay, I... <laughs> I mean, I know a little bit about Indonesian fashion because I've um, studied that somewhat. I I go to Indonesia quite often as well. Um, and so some of the things are really nice to read because there's some familiarity with, you know, the things that she describes, um, the designers she brings up, um, the idea of shopping, the idea of dressing up, all really important to um, the Indonesian society. But what I found not so great would be well I I don't know whether this is like just you know the writer's worldview which you know I cannot fault her on okay so basically there's this one paragraph it's on page 50 I'm just flipping through it and she talks about how there's this designer well August Osastro the person on the cover and how he recognizes um the power of film as a medium Actually, no, I'm not sure whether it's Sosastro who's on the cover. Hold on. I might be mistaken. Okay, but anyway, he is... Um, sorry about that. Okay, clearly I'm not very... I haven't prepared as well as Danny has with all her notes for this episode. But, um, okay, regardless. So, um, the designer recognizes the power of film as a medium. So, that's how she began her paragraph. And, you know, she talks about how he has used fashion films you know, to put forward his collection, which I thought was amazing because, I mean, you know, it shows how actually the fashion industry is really developed 
um, that people have interesting ideas, that people have the tools and the collaborators available to yeah. put forward these interesting concepts. Um, and then the film that she talks about is called um, Sumurup, a Javanese word denoting the transition from day to night. And it you know, encompasses um, goddess Dewi Sri, the mythical goddess of fertility. And I was reading all these amazing details about the film and how it's really entrenched in Java history and Javanese culture. And then suddenly it just like, towards the end of the paragraph, she says, you know, it is a compelling project. And I have to quote this in full. Um, It is a compelling project that evokes the intensity and drama of the photography of Stephen Mizell. So rude. <laughs> yeah, then I was like, what? Like, okay, I'm I'm reading about like August Sasastra. I'm reading about how this is a fashion film collaboration with a Joke Jakarta based visual artist called Alan Mahima Lars. Yeah. Um you know, and in fact this film won um a co- like a prize at a competition. Yeah. And then suddenly it's like at the end, oh it's like, you know, it is compelling project that work. <laughs> yeah, that not not even anything, just evokes, you know, a, a Mizell work, whose mm-hmm. 2010 shoot with um, model Kristen McManamy for Vogue Italia, at the time led by Franca Suzani, inspired by the ecological disaster of the Gulf of Mexico, was applauded, but not without controversy. So, yeah, I'm telling you, I was like, oh gosh, why did she say that? And I had to reread the entire paragraph, and I just don't understand why there would be this anecdotal comparison. Because there was really no need, you know. She had already done a good job setting up what the film was about, um, how great the film was, how it was like an amazing collaboration. So there was really no need for this, like really rude, like you said, intrusion. <laughs> yeah. Of, and I mean, not to like no disrespect to Mizell or McManamy or Vogue Italia or Franca Susani. I mean, why then? Why is there a need for four names? You know. Um, yeah. So then I was like, okay, never mind. Don't think about it anymore. Let's continue reading the book. And then um, three pages later, uh, when she was talking about Musa Widyat Mojo, um, who is another designer, uh, she talks about how designing for performance is high on Musa's agenda. And um, I quote again, designing for dance performance is a lot more than designing costumes. It is a synergy of fashion and dance as indeed Coco Chanel demonstrated through her designs oh for Douglas Le Train Bleu in 1924. And we've discussed this before. She wasn't even the best designer for costumes. No. Yeah. That's, that's so really I'm a pity. Like, it's it's, it's like you said, it's like they are... It's her own worldview that gets brought into the writing. And academic writing always feels a lot of distrust for first-person writing. But the mm. truth is that even if you write in the third person, it, it's always from your point of lived experience, right? Yeah, it really is. And actually, I'm not... I guess I'm surprised or like... But not so surprised too, because throughout the book, actually, she sets up a lot of how you know she got to know all these Indonesian people in the fashion industry who helped her with the information, um, because mm. she herself had already been like um, I think researching dance in Indonesia for a long time, and then now she had another in with you know the modeling work that she did. I mean, yeah. these are all great, and of course, you know, the book that she's written is an invaluable resource for sure because, you know, she's really good with the details yeah. um, and really good with, like, putting in names and um, 
drawing out the network, I actually am very impressed by how, you know, she has touched upon like all the different layers of um, the fashion industry, um, mm-hmm. including like, you know, key figures beyond designers, like, right? Like people who like do like buyers. fashion weeks. Yeah. Yeah, or you know where you're gonna buy the textiles, or like yeah. you know um, the different tiers of the malls and who would go to the malls and what they would do there. So these are all really great, you know. And she pays a lot of attention to really um, developed, um, established designers like Iwan Tirta, like Bian, like Adrian Gan. Um, so these are all wonderful. But I must say, you know, the comparisons or the like. Really, to me, random insertions of um, European references. Yeah, it, it just it's just jarring, and I don't think it really adds any value. So that's pretty unfortunate. But I was wondering whether she did this, thinking that the book is written for a more European audience, you know, who might need that reference point to kind of get it. And in fact, I might have misread her intentions entirely. Maybe she was it was high praise for her to like, you know, put these designers on the same platform as, um, you know, with Coco Chanel and the costume design or the fact that that fashion film together with um, Lars was as good as the Steven Maizawa. So maybe that was an intention. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I so mean, maybe that's, that's an intention. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I because guess if, it's just hmm. when we are reading it, especially as coming from outside the centres of where knowledge is usually produced as people from like colonies or post-colonies I feel like we're a lot more sensitive to things like this in writing like I know that we we would pick on things that just don't sound right and to others who come from that culture maybe a European person would feel like it would just brush over that fact you know it wouldn't be as jarring yeah, that's true. Because I think we come from a place of like maybe inferiority <laughs> in a sense that, I mean, we don't well, think of ourselves power, as inferior. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe less power, maybe yeah. less control over the narrative. Yes. Um, so especially when someone is writing about something that feels closer to home, mm. um, like you feel like you kind of um, have more, you should have more say in it in some way, then reading something like that feels a bit like, oh, why did she write that? You know, and like, oh, I feel a bit offended. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's what it is. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, I was, I really enjoyed reading um, this book. And actually, it's quite a good read in a sense that there isn't, to me, a lot of analysis. It's more factual. It's more observational. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel like there are a lot of, um, there's like a big argument being put forward, which is pretty nice, you know. And I think it's, it's a book that's a long time coming because there isn't such such a book available because usually when we look at like Indonesian fashion um, online or in books it's usually talking about like traditional wear uh, maybe some patchier stories about like you know a single brand a single fashion designer um, but nothing comprehensive like this so this is really awesome and you know to me as someone who is uh, I would consider an outsider she has uh, she has gotten things right Mm. you know Aside from those references, there's nothing I'm reading that I'm like, oh, but, you know, that's not what it is. Like, hey, you've got it wrong kind of thing. So there isn't anything like that. And, yeah. I'm also wondering about Mm. the value of maybe if she could have um, 
did she credit the people that she got the information from or definitely uh yeah it's really well documented and you know she in her acknowledgements it's all really clear uh what i thought would be a great sort of follow up to the book would be looking at the more the younger designers so i think she focused more on designers who have been around for a while you know like maybe at least 20 years i would say you know so mm-hmm. the names i referred to earlier um like ivan tirta they have been around for a long time they do things like with batik and stuff but um she mentions i believe designers like um peggy her Peggy Hartanto, uh, Toton Januar, um, mm. but no, nothing, nothing detailed about that. And she explains why too, you know, that it's not really in the scope of the book. And of course, it can't cover everything. Yeah. But, you know, I got excited about that because I was like, oh, you know, maybe um, someone else, maybe we can write something about it. Maybe our students can write something about it because, um, yeah, there's a lot to be, to be said. There's like a really vibrant scene going on. Yeah, totally. Mm. Both in art and fashion and music. Um, yeah. I know. So, I mean, well, I uh, well, I, I read this book also because I was excited about the methodologies she, she used in the book for my own research. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, there, I don't think there's really any, like, you know, groundbreaking sort of framework. Although um, it has given me some ideas about, you know, threats to pursue in my own research on Singapore fashion. Yeah, that's great. Mm. That's okay. So you've been you've been reading something as well. Yeah, so actually I've had this book for a few months now. It's called Fashion and Postcolonial Critic. It's edited by uh Elke Gaugel and Monica Titten. Um and mm-hmm. it's published by the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. Mm, mm. So I was happy to plan this podcast episode because it meant that I would have to finish reading it. <laughs> and I just have been postponing it a little. Um, the first thing that you notice about the book is how well it is designed. Like It's really beautiful. It's this light, dusty pink with a really striking image yes. um, of an African model. Um, and the layout inside is really good. And they've also included like some photo photographic essays which just Mm -hmm. shows I think how much of um, post-colonial theory and post-colonial work in fashion and the visual arts is actually done through making strong images you know it's almost like for the west to believe it exists they need to see an image or a picture of it and it's also a way of kind of like asserting um, your your um existence by creating images from mm. from different realities so there's a lot of really interesting photo essays from like um the african diaspora and um different magazines and photographers but as i have told you earlier um I've, i did find some of the essays a little bit difficult to read in terms of there was just um i didn't see the point of them or they were just kind of going around to to diff, kind of name dropping different things which I didn't really um, mm. care for so much and I guess before we even talk about the book we need to um, to kind of define what post-colonial theory is so as we know from the 18th to 20th century 
many countries were under col colonial rule from the Dutch, the Spanish, the British, um, the Portuguese. And so post-colonial theory came about um, to kind of account for the effects of European colonial rule and to see what effects it had on society, on aesthetics, e economics, and, po and politics of these countries. So this book was trying to address that. Um, but I also feel like it would have been good to see some more co-authoring with or authors from who actually had that lived experience of living in a post-colon in a post-colony or a place that has been post-colonized. Um, because many of these writers, while they are like terrifically accomplished, they are they are, and also because the book is made in Vienna, they are from a very um, European perspective. And the essays that I enjoyed the most were one was by a Turkish writer, um, and the name is Burku Dogramachi, and it's titled Fresh Off the Boat, A Reflection on Fleeing, Migration, and Fashion Theory. So Fresh Off the Boat, what comes to mind is that um, TV series Fresh Off the Boat about mm. immigrants in America. And so they are talking, the, the essay does a really beautiful way, a beautiful job of talking about migration and this experience of fleeing. And for example, um, one of the designers that she talks about is a Vietnamese graduate based in Berlin called Huynh. And she based her graduate collection on her parents' experience of fleeing Vietnam on boats um, during the Vietnam War. And and then instead of like using the common visual tropes of fleeing or distress or kind of trauma, which would have been like torn surfaces, um, kind of raw edges, she did a very beautiful and textured collection that was a bit more minimal. And the writer here is trying to read visually and materially how these different garments um, talk about these ideas of um, migration. And the other example that he that she uses is um, Hussein Chalayan's collections, and Hussein Chalayan also comes from um, kind of this um, knowledge of being of of having firsthand knowledge of migration and unrest, and he did a lot of collections that were dealing with ideas of flight and movement and the trauma that comes with this. So, for example, his Fall Winter 2000 collection afterwards, um, you could see that models entered this living room and that had all this furniture and then they started wearing the furniture. So it's kind of trying to recreate this idea of when people have to flee their country, um, how immediate it is and how they have only the things around them to bring with them. So I, I really enjoyed this essay very much. And... Another one that I liked was this one on the Blisco wax, African wax cloth. Um, it's written by Christine Delhay, and she talks about the production of African wax cloth in a neoliberal global market, Blisco and the processes of imitation and appropriation. And I, I, I think we kind of hear a lot about African wax prints, and we've kind of known that they actually come from the Dutch wanting to sell Indonesian batik 
and to mass manufacture Indonesian batik to Indonesians mm-hmm. and failing. And so instead they sold, they found a market in West Africa and that's how Blisco became like a household name and batik became very synonymous with West African culture. So that was a really interesting essay because it positioned it with some good theory from bell hooks and even people like um, Susan B. Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in my conclusion of reading this book would be <laughs> that it's great to have all this academic writing, but what's more important is to have a real life um, application of all these theories and I wanted to to finish the review of the book with three um, Instagram accounts that I thought are doing this decolonizing visually very well. And mm-hmm. one is called um, Fashioning the Self, who is, uh, which is an Instagram account that um, it's trying to show the sartorial ingenuity of people of African descent. And it's started by a Harvard professor of African diasporic fashion and art called Jonathan M. Square. And if you look at the Instagram account, it's got really great images from history and some really great quotes from um, diasporic writers. And it's really very thought through in the way that he has kind of created this collage of images. Um, And I really love that. And the second Instagram account that I thought was very strong in doing this post-colonial alternative histories was um, Dumpling Commons, which is this um, also Instagram account that um, does these little think pieces with really great images um, about Asia. So they do things from Indonesia, Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia, and India, and they, they they put them in like really good um, context and in very short captions that really get the gist of it. And the last one that I really love was the one that I found recently, which is called Miro Moda underscore. And this is a um, New Zealand Maori fashion events company. And through them, I found this designer called Campbell Luke. And his bio reads decolonizing design one step at a time. And so he himself is from indigenous descent. And I really love... Um, if you read his website, the he talks about using indigenous wisdom and his nostalgia for his indigenous heritage and and the values that Maori culture have towards his work ethic. And I thought, and I think that these are examples that more strongly show the work that is already happening on the ground. And academia just like takes a while to catch up to all these things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know what you mean about the book um, that you were just talking about, fashion and post-colonial critic, because I also read this book. Mm-hmm. And um, the one I liked best, or the one that seemed most useful for my, for my research, um, is the is one by Brigitte Hainal. Mm-hmm. And she talks about this idea of the fashion scape, oh, drawing yeah. upon um, Arun Appadurai's uh, five scapes. You know, and then she combines that with uh, David Gilbert's work on fashion's world cities. So I thought, oh, that was pretty interesting, you know, to kind of put together these two sort of disparate kinds of writing and then coming up with something that was relevant, that could be useful to understand or to unpack um, 
a post-colonial, I don't know, reading of um, fashion. <laughs> but yeah. I definitely concur with you that, you know, there's, there's just a lot of layers in the book and I would have definitely enjoyed maybe clearer case studies, like more in-depth kind of analysis mm-hmm. so that I could see how it was used rather than having like a lot of new ideas surface without um concrete examples. an example yeah, yeah without like a concrete sort of like really drilling it in sort of yeah. example yeah i guess that's why i enjoyed those two essays i mentioned because they are mm. they are linking it to things that we already see in the fashion industry and like you said not not just like theories that oh it could be or it could be but we don't know yeah. how to apply it I know. And I mean, I haven't, I didn't even talk about how like, you know, the writer also looks to Homi Baba. So it's like, it was like Afutura <laughs> and then Gilbert and then Homi Baba, like in yeah. a really short sort of um, yeah. essay. So it was, yeah, so it was really like touch and go. And then at some point I was like, oh gosh, does it really work? I mean, um, how would one go about it? Yeah. So it's kind of strange really. But it's still really wonderful to see all these new kind of um, trajectories, you know, yeah. being explored academically. And yeah. I guess for us, it's really about thinking more critically about like how we look at things from our perspective and also trying to not um, adopt exactly what other people say, right? Yeah. About the situation, which is really hard because I think we are so used to doing it. Yeah. Like, we're so used to that um, Eurocentric narrative. And even as we're trying to, like, unpack it, it's also kind of difficult to undo those power relations within our own minds. Yeah, I mean, we've also been educated in these systems, you know? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, because we, we were colonized too, right? And, um, uh, yeah. And then we went to know. Britain to continue studying. I know. <laughs> yeah. Still am, so that's true, yeah. yeah. Mm. But and I, sometimes I, I wonder, sorry, go ahead. No, yes, go ahead. Okay. okay, I'll go ahead. Yeah, so, yeah, sometimes it's like, I also don't want to be too strident or to be too like, yeah, everything's bad and like, you know, nobody's writing any of value because obviously it's not the case, but yeah, I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just really, you know, these things that are just entrenched it's hard to, first of all, realize that there are entrenched notions, that they are not the truth, but just something that's been repeated over and over so that we think it's, yeah. it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to think, it's the right thing to say. Yeah. And then the next thing to do would be to like, how do I break that apart? And how do I offer up a new perspective? Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes... Mm, go ahead. No, please. Okay. You can go... Um, <laughs> I realized also, I think this is why it's hard to record remotely because there are no visual cues. I don't know what you're about to yeah. say. Something. <laughs> uh, I think also it's, um, I also wonder about my own research. Like, I feel there are all these like itsy bitsy things happening, right? About breaking apart like that centralized narrative. So now it's about being decentralized, about being postmodern, post colonial, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, sometimes I wonder if there is a way also to um, make some useful generalizations as well although that seems to go to fly in the face of the idea of deconstruction deconstruction yeah or like deconstructing what we've known so i don't know yeah yeah okay we'll just do our own little bit in our own little ways and hopefully we just know that um 
it's good to question what we read and it's good also to be curious about what other people say right yeah. so that we can understand ourselves better at the same time I guess yeah and I also feel mm. like books like these like the fashion and post-colonial critic I mean they are published in Vienna and maybe they are more for like you said a European audience mm. um, because sure. then it is the colonies that are trying to post-colonialize their point of view also and on our side what we do is from the post-colonies we just kind of continue to think about these structures and deconstruct them and create content from our region and they can do their own stuff there to kind of understand what we're doing yeah there definitely needs to be more academic research coming from our region i think and hopefully we will contribute to it in the years to come yeah Yeah. okay and our our students too who are listening they should do the same (laughs) (laughs) yeah speaking of you would you want to talk about how um tess just is gonna have her article published i mean that's a perfect example of you know new research that helps to yeah shine a light on what's happening in our region yeah, um, I was so happy um, mm. for one of our students, Tess Yu, who did her recent, dis- I mean, she's just about to graduate, and she did her dissertation on um, the Chinese-Singaporean death rituals. And she took these really beautiful images of mourning garments and did like a material culture analysis of um, using Ingrid Nida's um, kind of um, methodology for material culture research and she did this dissertation and submitted it to um, a journal called bias journal which is run by the parsons school of design and they were doing this death um death themed journal and yeah and i i saw it on instagram and i told her and another student who also was writing about death, I, death has been a very popular subject <laughs> the last semester. Um, and I, I guess Tess submitted it and they are going to publish her research and it reads really well. Mm. So I'm just going to read a little bit from that caption here. So here it says that Tess Yu analyzes the funeral dress itself, how a red cotton mourning pin communicates the grade of mourning one is in how the coarseness of a garment conveys a certain severity of grief and loss, or how only a select group of family can wear them in the first place. Thus, these garments are loaded devices of social communication. They are tools for the performing bodies to communicate intimate expressions and give meaning and identities acceptable for public presentation. Above all, it is a signifier of their current state of public identity and group participation worn as an outer skin. And I just thought that yeah, this is exactly what it is, right? Writing things from this region and giving first-hand examples and new um, new knowledge about dress and fashion practices in in here. Yeah, so good. Yeah. Yay, Tess. Go, Tess. Yeah. <laughs> okay, on that note, um, I guess we have a lot of research and writing to do. Because yeah. um, we set the task for ourselves in this episode. And yeah, let's talk again soon, Danny. <laughs> and if you like Yeah. And if you like what you hear, please um follow us on Instagram at in the between. And you can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. 
Till the next time. Bye. Bye.